It is March 2020, and nobody ever told you that the apocalypse would be so boring. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. Another can of beans. Another round of hand washing. Another episode of the Golden Girls. Ah, quarantine. Shelter in place, or on lockdown. Or simply stay at home. Call it what you will. Doing your part for Oregon's public health can get a bit... dull. Yet... This isn't the first time that Portlanders have been cooped up in their homes for weeks on end doing absolutely nothing, except for something that was absolutely necessary to stop the spread of a communicable disease. In fact, 102 years ago, a similar exercise was conducted in Portland in response to what was then termed the Spanish flu. And yes, let's start by calling out that name. We don't name diseases after places anymore. We asked Professor Chris Nichols, director of the Oregon State University Center for the Humanities, about the Spanish flu. He joined us by telephone from Corvallis. So we hear racist terminology emerging from our federal administration about the current pandemic. Is Spanish flu also a xenophobic term? So, yes, um, quite clearly it is. Uh, you know, I think there's some um, uncertainty, uh, even in the scholarly community, about the exact origins of uh, the influenza um, that we think of as the, causing the epidemic known as the Spanish flu of 1918 to 19. Uh, but it seems pretty clear the consensus among historians is that it came from Kansas, in fact. Uh, as, that is the mutation, uh, the mutated form um, that we know of causing so much uh, damage, destruction, and despair. Uh, but there are some debates about it possibly originating in Vietnam or China, uh, maybe in France. But in any case, um, the immediate historical context of the phrase 
uh, Spanish flu um, comes out of the World War One context, um, and it's kind of a fascinating short story. So basically, uh, Spain was a neutral power in World War One. Um, whereas uh, eventually, as of April uh, 1917, the U.S. joins on the side of the British, the French, um, Entente Allied Powers. Uh, so the, Spain, early on in the conflict, declared its neutrality um, and, as early as August 1914. Um, but most observers, Brits uh, and Americans, um, thought that the highest echelons of Spanish society, that is their sort of aristocracy and the rich uh, conservatives, favored the central powers, favored Germany, Austria-Hungary, uh, and the like. Uh, that partly comes out of a longer history of the House of Habsburg and the aristocracy dividing between Austria and Spain. Um, but in any case, they were a neutral power that was often thought of as siding with um, the central powers. So uh, when the flu started to hit, in 1918 and crossed around the world, um, it traveled largely by routes related to the conflict. So American troop transports and ships, uh, railroad cars across North America, uh, and then those working on wartime projects uh, eventually leading to spread all over the place. Um, as it spread, uh, though, the most nations who were involved in the war had laws that prevented their media from covering anything that would undermine the war effort. So in England, that was something called the Defense of the Realm Act. And in the U.S., that was something called the Sedition Act. So the media wasn't uh, supposed to say anything about a flu that would make troops not combat ready, for instance. Um, and so, too, there was kind of a hyper-patriotic sensibility about not talking about um, the flu as a major problem uh, and minimizing it. So you see this out of the Wilson administration in the U.S., uh, and you see this uh, in Britain and France and elsewhere. Um, what you don't see in places like Spain, who are neutral countries, were those kinds of limits on their media. So in May 1918, when the flu gets to Spain, um, it becomes headline news. Uh, now, this isn't the virulent form of the, of the flu that really killed most people that comes in the fall, late summer and fall of 1918 into 1919. This was a slightly milder version. But it infected um, King Alonso XIII, who was the king of Spain, uh, and some of his cabinet members. Um, and so Spanish reporting was among the first um, to really document in detail how the ravages of the flu went forward. They, at the time, they called it the three-day flu. And so as that, that media coverage uh, moved around the world, um, it seemed that the origins, therefore, of the flu were Spanish. What the British and American press follow in doing is calling it the Spanish flu. Uh, and in fact, you can read this, the London Times and other reporting suggests that it was the Spanish weather or climate that gave rise to it, or perhaps the hygiene of the Spanish people. And here's where you get that xenophobia and racism mixed with politics. So there's the sense that maybe the Spanish are uh, supporting the Germans and uh, Austria-Hungarian uh, folks in the conflict, the central powers, but also that the Spanish are somehow inferior and giving rise to this kind of disease. And so the combination of the two is really potent. And so by the end of 1918, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find any uh, medical professionals worth their salt who actually thought there were origins of the flu in Spain, but um, they continue to use this phrase. And so the Spanish influenza gets kind of weaponized. It's, it's a term uh, of othering. It's a term of saying, this isn't ours. This is a foreign virus. And this seems very familiar to us today. Portland, Oregon, was seeded with the sickness in early October 1918. On October 3rd, a sick soldier traveling through town was examined at the Portland City Hospital. Doctors determined it was the influenza they had so feared, so they put him in an ambulance 
and sent him to the Couve, the military hospital at Fort Vancouver. Professor Nichols next provides us some context for this global pandemic that was now in Portland, Oregon. So the, the global, when you telescope out, the global dimensions of the influenza epidemic of 1918 and 1919 um, are vast and uh, hard to disentangle from the wartime context. All of the uh, ways in which the world is united through the war, through material production, through troop transports, through the transmission of peoples and goods, material ideas across borders, it very much resembles the world we live in today. That is, it's, it's pretty, pretty fully globalized. So viruses spread very fast. If you look uh, at the re reporting of the, uh, of the ravages of the flu over the course of 1918, from March to June, you, it tr moves from Kansas to New Zealand. It goes all the way around the world that fast. Um, if you think about the costs, the, the human costs, the suffering, um, it's very clear that the wartime um, uh, kinds of strictures against reporting and against, um, against sort of honest and proactive uh, policies to prevent the spread are a major reason why it spreads, uh, but the wartime context also uh, generates that, that is induction camps and young men traveling all over the world. Um, uh, helped to facilitate the, the transmission of the influenza. Um, if you think about the other context here, something like uh, 20 to 30 percent of the world population is infected by it over the course of 15 months. Um, I prefer that, that the number uh, that number there um, in some of my own work, and, and the estimates range from 20 to 50 million people worldwide who are killed. You're looking at about 6 to 7 percent of the American population dies in the context of the war. 675,000 uh, in the uh, in the context of the influenza epidemic, but also in the context of the war, where you only lost um, uh, 100, uh, 120 or so thousand troops, uh, the majority of whom were lost to flu and to other illnesses. Um, so, if you look at um, sort of the, some of the global dimensions of the influenza epidemic of 1918 and 1919, uh, one thing that stands out is that it can't be disaggregated from um, the war, uh, but that in fact it was worse and uh, more global than that conflict, which is sometimes seen as the first um, truly global world war. Uh, there's some other ways to think about the global context. Um, you know, it's it presents a new kind of a challenge for a globalized, industrialized, and urbanized society or set of societies. Not all of the world, obviously, was as industrialized or as urbanized as the uh, Western nations, um, but the transmission of viruses across borders uh, and in high population density areas was not, again, was not unknown in the history of pandemics. There, there's some great literature on this, but it, it, it made a impact in the public mind um, that was uh, something seemingly modern. It's a little bit like the war itself, um, that the ravages of a virus in a large world community that was so interconnected um, were now more possible and perhaps more devastating, um, like a, con a world conflict through technology. So, you know, thinking about the rise of machine guns and flamethrowers and uh, tanks and airplanes and warfare and U-boats and submarines. Um, similarly, uh, a, a virus uh, in this modern context seemed a sort of new kind of problem. It presented a new problem for um, 
new kinds of governments. If you, because if you think about uh, the, those years, those were years of more centralization of power within federal government structures, and specifically in terms of the conflict, uh, more centralization in state authority so that they could manage the war. So in the U.S., that means a central uh, committee on public information, the CPI, a committee on public information headed by a muckraker named George Creel who didn't want to publish information about um, the influenza epidemic for fear it would undermine the war effort, uh, but also you know war industries boards, uh, price control boards, and other kinds of things. So as state structures become more federal and stronger, then you're slowly moving towards a world that would be more recognizable to us today. That is, the kinds of expectations that citizens in England or France or the U.S. would have of their government to handle public health crises and emergencies. If you go back farther in history, there wasn't that expectation. You wouldn't have thought that the state would be strong enough to deal with that or that modern medicine could deal with that. But in this era, you're beginning to see those kinds of claims by citizens of their state. Right after the discovery of the sick soldier, Portland's public health officials quickly crafted a public health campaign. They had good health announcements painted on glass lantern slides to be projected in Portland's 50 busy theaters and 250 others across the state. Sneezing, coughing, spitting in public places must be stopped if we are to keep Spanish influenza from our doors. Kind of catchy, huh? Portland's health officer, Dr. George Parrish, ordered that the ejections of sneezers and coughers from Portland's movie theaters was essential to save the city from a serious epidemic. So, sneeze in the movies, and they'd throw your ass out. In addition to the theaters, mass transit was targeted in the fight of influenza. The streetcar system was identified as a conveyor of vectors, and placards pleaded with passengers to curtail coughing, sneezing, and spitting on the carriage. Because 1918 Portlanders were, as the song says, especially good at expectorating, it would seem. Failure to smother a sneeze or cough in the handkerchief will hereafter be something more than a mark of ill breeding. Capacity of the streetcars were severely limited. The mouthpieces of telephones in public places like Union Station were all sanitized. On October 10, 1918, there were nine confirmed cases of Spanish influenza in Portland. Curtailment was desired, but the public was apprehensive as to how that response would affect their daily life. Portland's mayor, George Baker, stated, If health officials agree that such a drastic step as closing down Portland is necessary to fight the disease successfully, I shall not delay in taking the step. It is a very serious measure, however, and with the few cases which have been authenticated so far, there seems to be no need of immediate action. The next day, there were 60 cases of influenza. A week later, a makeshift hospital with 100 beds would be constructed in the Portland Public Auditorium, or today's Keller. It was soon full and 200 more beds were added. So it was actually bigger than the makeshift hospital the Oregon National Guard just carved out of the state fairgrounds in Salem. After some poking by the United States Surgeon General, Mayor Baker closed Portland, but that closing looked a little different than the coronavirus stay-at-home of 2020. Schools, churches, 
lodges, clubs, and other social groups were shut down, in addition to the 50 theaters. The library was closed, but the reference desk was still available by telephone between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Public gatherings were prohibited, but fresh air and outdoor activities were encouraged. Portlanders were then warned not to congregate in pool rooms, card rooms, and other public spaces, and additionally warned to ride about town on streetcars only when absolutely necessary. The mayor's proclamation, issued Thursday, effectively stopped the daily routine of pleasure that accompanied large gatherings. Portlanders from all eras seemed to be unable to follow simple instructions, and Mayor Baker had to expand the ban two weeks later. Restrictions on mass transit were expanded, such as opening all windows in the streetcars, in fucking November, as well as in order to stores to stop pushing sales and other promotions, because those gregarious Portlanders just couldn't stop gathering, kind of like today. As one public health official stated, The biggest thing we have had to fight in the influenza epidemic has been apathy, or perhaps the careless selfishness of the public. When initially proclaimed, the thought was that the order would be rescinded in two weeks. By early November, Baker was taking a lot of heat for his regulations. There seems to be a general belief that I am making these orders for my own special delight. He decided to expand the closure of Portland and required that stores close at 3.30 p.m. If the store sold food or medical supplies, these items could be purchased after 3.30 p.m. Included in the closure were pool rooms, card rooms, bowling alleys, and cigar and refreshment stands, which were also to close at 3.30. Remember, this was two years after Oregon's early adoption of Prohibition, so technically there were no bars or taverns to worry about, because technically there was no booze. Offices were ordered to close at 4 p.m. Four feet of what we would call social distance was to be maintained. In order to make sure everyone was playing nice, the entire Portland Police Bureau and 50 soldiers from the Oregon Military Police were unleashed upon the city streets. As influenza cases began to decline, Mayor Baker, reminding Portlanders that he was required to institute the ban, decided to lift the closure on Saturday, November 16, 1918. 
Oh, and the war ended? Important detail there, like uh, a giant detail. The First World War was now over. And what happened when the big war was over? Portlanders piled upon the previously prohibited public places. The theaters were packed to capacity, although coffers and sneezers were still ejected. The library was open to all, and book lovers rushed the doors. Churches and dance halls, barber shops and other concerns were once again agape to the masses. Oaks Park Roller Rink offered a special band concert for reopening night. Elevators and streetcars were stuffed with passengers, and the pool rooms and bowling alleys and card rooms followed suit. With the sudden end of isolation, the conclusion of the closure of Portland, it was time for a pent-up-for-six-weeks end of the goddamn war celebration. And the schools would follow suit the next Monday. Social distancing instantly dissipated into a massive quarter of a million people party packed with people and bodies and sudden closeness, and Mayor Baker refused to dampen the city's exuberant festivity. So, it should come as no surprise that people kept dying, and new cases were being reported every day. Three weeks later, City Health Officer Dr. Parrish said the closure might need to be reinstated. On a day that reported 175 new flu cases in hospitals at capacity, Dr. Parrish said, I believed Portlanders had been educated to the danger of the disease. Evidently, they have not. And so it may be necessary to plunge this city into gloom, both economic and social. The next day reported 216 new cases. This shit was far from over, and the jam-packed 1918 holiday shopping season was just about to begin in Little Portland. To combat the resurgence and not destroy the Portland economy again, a strict quarantine order was passed by the city council in mid-December. If a household member became ill, the entire household was quarantined for a number of days after the fever had broken. A placard was placed on the house denoting that it was indeed a dark place. Over 3,000 placards were ordered. The wage earner would be allowed to leave the house to go to work. While certainly better than a total shutdown, nonetheless, many Portlanders were pissed as some were often misdiagnosed with Spanish flu while actually suffering from tonsillitis or the common cold. But the real flu continued. A month later, a mask ordinance was passed, and attendees at gatherings were going to be required to have their mouth holes covered with gauze. It was rescinded before it was enacted. The flu persevered for months in Portland in a long and drawn-out affair. 
there were recurrent outbreaks over 1919, and Portlanders continued to die. But officials felt that they had a handle on the epidemic. Ultimately, 3,688 Oregonians perished from this influenza pandemic. So, is there anything we can learn from a pandemic that occurred 102 years ago? Is there anything really applicable to 2020's stay-at-home Portland? We asked Professor Nichols about his thoughts on this comparison. So my last question, of course, is the one on uh, historical comparisons. I, I happen to not be a huge fan of historical comparisons. Uh, but when we look at these two pandemics, 102 years apart, do you see a room for a historical comparison to what's going on now and what we saw in 1918? Yeah, so I think you're right to be skeptical of historical comparisons. Uh, and certainly, uh, we should always be skeptical when we hear people provide one-to-one comparisons, right? The sort of thing, the Iraq War is just like the Vietnam War. You know, that's obviously demonstrably flawed and false, and um, it doesn't do a service at all to the ways in which history can provide insights for the present. And I think that the influenza epidemic of 1918, 1919, and particularly in the American context, really does provide some insights to us. I think it's rare when history uh, offers fairly simple lessons, um, and I don't tend to like the language of a lesson. I think you're right to, to, again, to push back against that. But I think there are some lessons or insights that we can draw. The one that stands out to me from the history of that um, epidemic in 1918 was that um, the U.S. government, in particular in the American context, really uh, didn't communicate well. It was, it was the war. Um, there it was hyper-patriotism was rampant. Um, and the lack of information, the minimizing of risks, the obfuscating of the truth, uh, and the push forward for sort of life as usual or as usual as it could be in in a moment of being in a world war, um, really pushed against good public health measures uh, from the top down from the federal government and people who wanted citizens and state leaders and local leaders who wanted good information and, and leadership from the Wilson administration in particular. So uh, that's one lesson, right, that um, contracting information, uh, trying to uh, minimize risk is a problem, especially in the context of a pandemic, because you simply can't say uh, issue platitudes like everything's going to be fine. Uh, we just don't know. And so a more honest answer would be we're not sure what the course of the virus will be. Uh, this is why we're taking these actions, or this is why this is just a recommendation and not an edict, that kind of thing. So a second level um, insight from the history of the influenza epidemic of 1918 to 1919, which I think should give us some hope in the present moment, is that in the U.S. context, um, the real leadership came from the local and state levels. Uh, it came from public health officials in city government. It came from mayors. It came from governors. But it really devolved down to the lowest levels in the absence of the Wilson administration giving more leadership uh, and with a, a, a media that was really not covering this um, as it might have, in part because of the strictures of the Sedition Act and wartime pressure, um, you had local leaders step up. And so one of the classic examples of this, uh, which I would encourage listeners to, to check out, is the comparison between the city of St. Louis and the city of Philadelphia in 1918. 
The city of St. Louis had some really smart leadership. Um, There's a public health official who was the son of a Civil War surgeon who was really on it, really worried about the infection, and, and was empowered by the local mayor um, to take action rapidly the second they saw any um, any cases get into the St. Louis area. At the time, St. Louis was in the top five cities in the U.S. in terms of size um, and was an unlikely pers- state to be a city to be a uh, in the avant-garde of um, public health, you'd have to expect. Um, and and so what they did in September of 1918 was was immediately upon seeing influenza reach their local um, uh, army base, Jefferson Barracks, um, they started to lock down the city of St. Louis. The, the barracks and the troops were, were ravaged by the disease. There was a lot of death. But the city, though it had, though it had a, its fair share of cases, in, in fact, quite a few, did a lot better by, by doing school closures, by what we call, now call social distancing, by uh, limiting public transport, limiting business hours, um, ending public gatherings, all that sort of stuff. So it wound up being the top uh, city uh, of the top 10 in the U.S. and uh, something like 32nd out of 49 large cities over 100,000 in terms of um, illness and death. You put that in contrast with the city of Philadelphia, which was very laissez-faire, even though they had lots of sailors and soldiers coming through town. And in, in late September uh, of 1918, they held a huge Liberty Loan parade, a parade, hyper-patriotic parade, flags everywhere. Within a week, they had 2,500 people die. Within two, within two weeks or so, 4,600. Their hospitals were full. Um, that parade is a classic example of why you want to practice social distancing and shut down public gatherings. But their public health officials, their mayor, were saying, you know, we've got this under control. It's just uh, in the military areas right now. Um, don't don't panic. I think is a direct quote. Don't panic about over exaggerated reports. Um, so that's a great example. Philly wound up being one of the worst hit cities. St. Louis uh, fared far better, and that's all about local leadership. Uh, and if you're thinking about the case of Portland, um, which we'll be talking about uh, on the show, you know um, Portland's an intermediate example, right? Portland slowly comes to the game of pra- practicing those those uh, behaviors and putting down those kinds of official orders. Um, and at the end of the day, you know I think that's a nice uh, way of thinking about sort of the range of this. You can be out front, way out in front, uh, and, and there are a lot of benefits that accrue from that. You can be far behind, um, and and really it, it comes at a great cost. And then somewhere in the middle tends to prolong the duration of of the influenza epidemic, but uh, perhaps still um, mediates against having some of the the larger deaths. So I think those are insights that that span the 102 years and and are very applicable today, that the costs of inaction far outweigh the costs of action. You can just see that in the public health and the public policy history of the influenza epidemic of World War I. I'll give you one other example here, too. I think one thing that's really interesting that maybe doesn't fit as well is in thinking through um, the role of the federal government. Uh, you know, even though arguably the Wilson administration was the strongest federal government, uh, other than perhaps the Lincoln federal government of the Civil War, which was just a part of the nation state at that point, the Union, um, the Wilson administration didn't have the powers, control, and large bureaucracy that we have today. And the size and scope of the of American economy, for instance, uh, and the reg financial regulatory tools and monetary policy that are possible in 2020 are, are just 
absolutely different um, from from those uh, of the World War One era. And so I think the tools that are available to um, the federal government today uh, so far outstrip those of the Wilson administration that though we might lament the slow response of both they don't quite compare fully, uh, and probably if you if you want to be thoughtful about it, um, the capacity of the federal government today is so much greater than the Wilson administration's years that you have to lament the fact that um, the U.S. government hasn't pulled out more stops uh, more recently or more rapidly. I mean, that would be one lesson of World War One, but given the tools of the current moment. Finally, we asked Professor Nichols if he had any parting thoughts for our conversation on either of our now two favorite global pandemics. Yeah, so I think if we're looking at the sweep of the pandemic um, in 1918 to 19, there are a few other elements that are worth sketching out uh, for those of us thinking about what we could, what we might be preparing for today, uh, or just how that uh, occurred 102 years ago. So, you know, the first wave of the influenza epidemic in 1918 um, was much more mild, uh, and so there was there was some good reason for uh, officials, public health officials, politicians to hope um, that uh, it would go away. Uh, and though there, it ravaged uh, American communities, uh, something like 24 of the 36 or so uh, largest U.S. bases were hit very badly um, by influenza. And, and again, it was American troops, soldiers, sailors, uh, and workers in the armed forces um, who were primary conduits or vectors of, of, of the flu, uh, bringing it to civilian communities as they moved across uh, the country and around the world. Um, uh, those folks, as that moved across the U.S., starting somewhere in the Midwest, likely Kansas, and then into into Europe, um, the, it was often referred to as the three-day fever uh, or sometimes minimized as um, a, an old disease with a new name. The grip was something they called it. By the time you get to May, that's when the Spanish uh, have begun um, giving media accounts related to how hard it hit Spain. Um, you know, another mistaken assumption about that, uh, about the language of the Spanish flu, is that Spain was hit harder than other countries. Um, historians of medicine, historians of science have, have pretty uh, convincingly proven that, that Spain was not hit any harder and, in fact, was hit less hard than, than a number of European countries. Um, it's just the publicity. It's just the fact that their media covers it so much and the king was afflicted and the cabinet officials were afflicted um, that that it, that the Spanish flu uh, moniker uh, developed in that era. But as it moves across, say, the Western Front, um, you see some French bases uh, had more than 50 percent of, of their uh, troops down. They were not combat ready. And this was one reason why um, the French press did not cover this and the French politicians actually hid the fact that the flu was hitting their troops so hard. It wasn't that they weren't recovering fairly rapidly, although a lot of them also died, unfortunately. Um, it was that they weren't combat ready for not just three days of fever, but a whole week or 10 days or two weeks. Um, so as you see this flow across uh, Europe then in the spring and summer, um, slowly the flu seems to die out in June into July. And uh, as you can look at the press coverage of the moment, um, as little as it was, or uh, you can look at especially at um, uh, secretly recorded government documents, um, 
you find that uh, a lot of folks in, in British and American circles uh, are pretty happy that, that they think it's gone. And all of a sudden, in August um, 1918, the, some U.S. and British uh, intelligence officers see that the flu has cropped up in Switzerland, and it is much, much worse. And this is often seen as the beginning of the second wave of the influenza epidemic. And they write some scorching uh, letters, raising the alarm bell, saying, uh, in terms of naval intelligence, you know, watch out, just because the British fleet had 10,000 troops get it and only something like four people died in the spring doesn't mean that this new version is not going to do a lot more damage. Uh, and so the Swiss Swiss medical practices were pretty good in that era, uh, and they had lots of people dying, especially young, healthy people. So that's a real difference between now and then. Uh, it, it, seemingly, lots of young, healthy people had a much stronger immune reaction, immune system reaction, and that fed into the deaths in that era. Um, and so then by August, the second wave is coming. And this is where you can really castigate allied governments because um, in, in August and September 1918, allied governments still put forward parades and activities and hyper-patriotic movements. And the U.S. is still sending troops uh, across the Atlantic. And one telling anecdote is that when troop transports arrived in France from the U.S., they were met by ambulances because there were so many troops dying and infirm over that Atlantic transatlantic trip um, that they had to pull out the corpses and take them immediately to hospitals. That's how bad it was, and yet that was not getting out. And so you can see slowly as this moves into the fall 1918 moment, a real crisis. We're getting close to the end of the war, right? The armistice is November 11th, 1918. Um, and the question is, should the U.S. continue the draft, for instance? Uh, and they don't. It stops in September because so many of these troops are going down with, with the virus and it looks like the war will end. Um, and it, it's a really amazing moment. And then suddenly into October, you finally start to get the Surgeon General and other people in the U.S. taking this much more seriously. They issue recommendations for school closures, for uh, other public gathering closures. And it, it's at that moment that the pandemic takes on a sort of public health crisis in the American imaginary and in the British imaginary. Um, but they've lost so much time in terms of public trust that this history suggests that that's maybe the biggest problem. And if we're thinking about lessons we can learn or insights um, for the present moment, that's one because there's some really amazing and, and really searing social histories that talk about how people who had to self-quarantine and, and didn't feel like they could trust the government, say in Washington, D.C. or in Charleston, South Carolina, or you know all over the U.S., they were fearful, they were isolated from their communities, they weren't going to church anymore, and they weren't volunteering to help their neighbors in ways that they say in their diaries and letters that they would like to have, but they simply don't know what to do because they don't trust the advice that they'd been getting. And by the time the U.S. government or the British government get out these, uh, you know, cover your sneezes, cover your coughs, um, don't go to work if you're sick, quarantine kinds of orders, the sorts of things that then happen in Portland in October and November uh, 1918, um, people aren't trusting that information anymore. And so that's a real challenge, too, that it takes a community to do the right kinds of moves uh, in this uh, in a pandemic or epidemic situation, um, but all that time that transpired over the course of 1918 led to some serious uh, community trust problems and information dissemination problems that then had ramifications into the second and third waves of the influenza epidemic, which are the most deadly, killing the most people worldwide, um, and, and really uh, changing the way that we think about pandemic and pandemic preparedness ever since.
So, what are you thinking about pandemic preparedness, dear ass kicker? As you ponder, why don't you text in your order to your favorite liquor store or your favorite local marijuana dispensary? They could use your support, and you might be able to use their products. And you could pick them up curbside. We've got a lot of time to consider the possibilities. And you can only think about Tin Beans and the Golden Girls for so long, right? Now, why not go back through any of our 100 Kick-Ass Oregon history episodes, and while you're listening, go wash your fucking hands. for listening ass kickers and be on the lookout for future podcasts from orhistory.com we hope that you agree that today's episode featured some kick-ass oregon history today's podcast was written recorded edited and produced by doug kank crispin and andy Lindbergh. citations are available on request kick-ass oregon history is on twitter at oregon underscore history Follow us on Instagram, at History. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at ORHistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. Out of the car, long hair! You stay historic, Oregon. And healthy. And isolated and kick ass. ORHistory.com